We're back. Welcome to season three of the Internal Comms podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Every two weeks, I'll be putting a guest in the hot seat in my quest to find new ways to improve the way we communicate at work. I'm really excited by my lineup of guests this season. We are confirming dates with some very experienced and influential communicators, as well as CEOs, willing to share their approach to internal comms. I'd urge you to subscribe today so you don't miss an upcoming episode. My first guest this season is the voice of internal communications himself, Chuck Ghost. The very first line of Chuck's LinkedIn bio says internal comms enthusiast. And as I'm sure you'll agree, his passion for internal comms really is clear throughout our discussion. Chuck is the founder of Icology, the groundbreaking podcast that since 2015 has given IC pros an international stage to share experiences and insights. We talk about what he's learned about himself and the profession during a 20-year career in comms, which includes time at General Motors and Rolls-Royce. And because Chuck is now strategic advisor at Social Chorus, I had to ask him about the digital communications landscape. When it comes to channels, platforms, all things tech, what opportunities, what pitfalls do we all need to watch out for? And as Chuck readily admits, he's not afraid to stir the pot. So do expect some pretty direct and no-nonsense advice too. Now, I have to apologise in advance for the recording quality, especially on my end of the line. I hope it doesn't detract you too much from what I think is both a funny and informative conversation. I hope you do too. Chuck, it is an absolute delight to have you on the Internal Comms podcast. You were top of the list of someone I really wanted to interview when the podcast was launched back in January. So I'm really glad we finally managed to find um, a time to speak. So thank you very much. Absolutely. No, apologies for taking us a little while to make this happen, but I'm glad we finally did. No, it's wonderful. Um, I wondered if we could start potentially a little bit near the beginning, just to set the scene for everyone, because I noticed that your degree was in journalism and political science, and I wondered what initially attracted you to those subjects all those years ago, and whether it was inevitable that you were always going to work with words. You know, I think that's possible, and when I think back when I saw the question. It, I, I thought back in the day I was going to be a newspaper man. Uh, right. Even even early on, like remember elementary school, junior high, like I liked reading the paper. I liked seeing the stories and the photographs that accompanied it. Even really dating myself, even thinking the way USA Today changed the newspaper world with color and graphics and, and that kind of it, it excited me. And that's that's why I went into college uh, in journalism. Because that's, that was my plan. That's what I thought I was going to do. And then while in college, I added the political science because I like the, the, the debate, the impact that politics has on all sorts of aspects of our life. But it was also while I was in college that I did an internship with a newspaper. That, that was where I learned that I did not want to be a newspaper man. <laughs> uh, the, the hours, the, the politics inside the newsroom. Uh, I just realized that, that that was the best internship I ever had in college because it told me exactly what I did not want to do. But that's what helped me get my first jobs because it showed that I could very quickly put thoughts together, put things on paper, tell a story, um, do it in creative ways. So though it was a negative experience from a day-to-day standpoint, it was a very positive experience. And then it showed me what I didn't want to do, but where my skills and strengths were. Yeah. Yes, and then your early role seemed to be quite really in sort of external comms, communicating with external audiences in, in marketing and uh, media relations and so on. I just wondered what then sort of attracted you to the world of IC. Was there a moment when you started doing it and you thought, oh, hang on, this is, this is really interesting? 
it, it, it was, and it did start out in that world, and it started out in that world because that was the first job I could get. Uh, I graduated with, the, back when I left college, there wasn't an internal comms focus on any career opportunities. Uh, so marketing and comms were the ones that I could lend that, that skill set to. But it was as I kind of made my way through that career that I started to work for some very large companies and saw the impact of culture and communications and oftentimes the lack of communications and how employees communicated with each other and how leadership communicated down, that it got me started to think and ask questions around what impact internal comms would have without really even knowing that term, internal yeah. communications. And it was then I, I eventually ended up in a job at General Motors, which is in a manufacturing environment. And the job I inherited, the predecessor, it was a blend. It was internal and external. The predecessor probably focused on more 90% external and 10% internal. And we tend to carry over what, if we go into a new job, we tend to carry over some of the habits that the person had before. But I yeah. pretty quickly saw that my curiosity and interest was more around the employees and what they wanted and what they needed to know and what was on their mind and not so much the general public. And so that was really that moment that I kind of flipped the script on that role and spent 90% plus on the internal and only 10% on the external. And it was then I saw that by making that investment in asking questions, being creative, talking to employees, even moving my office down to the factory floor so that I could be close to it. Um, that's when I really saw the impact that a creative communications approach can have with employees, even in a union manufacturing environment where you've got some inherited challenges there. And then going from GM to Rolls-Royce, which when I went to move to Rolls-Royce, that was solely internal comps. So then I could really sink my teeth into connecting employees back to the business, having fun with them, changing the way the company communicated. I think long before even comms transformation became a term, there have been communicators doing that for a really long time and that they've really invested themselves in their work and the employees and the leadership and really helped to not to always just change the culture, but improve the culture and inject culture into everything they do. Mm -hmm. One thing listening to you that really resonates with me, and I've heard you speak about this, I think I heard you speak about it at a world conference, is at GM and at Rolls-Royce, as you said, you, you moved your office to actually be near and on the front line. What made you do that? Was it just a very natural response to saying, I want to be near my audience? Or was it countercultural at the, at the time? Were you actually making a deliberate decision to do something other people hadn't done in the past? Well, I think you might have uncovered a little bit of my personality there, Katie, and I knew <laughs> the pot a little bit. Uh, it, I think it was both. And it, it was both because my family grew up in manufacturing, not in communications and manufacturing, but actually supervisors and material managers and people like that in manufacturing. So I kind of grew up in that world. So that was very comfortable for me to be in there. It wasn't intimidating being down there. But yes, it did also send a message that, you know, me moving closer to my audience, me being in their world, having lunch in their break rooms, them seeing me walk to and from, um, that created a lot of camaraderie in that. So they, then they would approach me about questions or what did I hear or what did I know? And that gave me some insight outside of any focus group, outside of any surveys being done. Um, I got to be a bit of a resource for them and it would help me even bounce ideas off of them to find out what mattered to them, what did they care about, what was maybe holding them back a little bit, that as a communicator, I could help start to solve some of those problems for them. And presumably, it also gave you a tremendous amount of knowledge about what was inside uh, their minds and what they were thinking about that then you could take back to your senior team and say, if you're trying to do this, I do it that way, not this way, potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes they would ask me, why, why is the company doing something this way? And the initial response is, which is somewhat cliche to say, but, well, that's how we've always done it. But if they're asking the question, then the question should be asked. And so it is it is it changing how, like when I was at Rolls-Royce, we changed how these voice of the customer segments that we created, where we bring in customers into the building or that employees go in and hear them, that came out of them asking questions about, 
customers. This wasn't a leadership thing that drove that. It was a, a employee thing that wanted to know what are our customers saying about us? What do they think about us? And so it was them helping drive some of those communication activities. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. One of the things presumably that's changed in the time that you've been working in internal comms must be the kind of the routes to market, as it were, the digital landscape in particular. And throughout your career, you've been closely involved in digital channels and um, platforms with MediaTile, Staff Connect, and now obviously as a senior advisor to Social Chorus. If I could ask you to step back and I guess take the, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it, the helicopter view. What's your take? What's your view on the digital IC landscape today? Because in some ways, I think we could argue that there's almost an over-proliferation of channels and tools um, to reach audiences. What's your view on this? Well, first off, that's a nice Rolls-Royce pun, stuck by the helicopter. Thanks <laughs> for that. Nice segue there. Uh, yeah, I, the, the way I describe it to people, for the last decade plus, I've had you know, one foot in comms and one foot in tech and kind of bounce back and forth a little bit where I'll educate communicators about the value of technology, but also educate technology about the value of communications. And I find myself being a bit of this, this gateway or this bridge uh, at times between those worlds. And I have had the fortunate opportunity to work with a lot of different technology companies. So my view, one, is that I wish I had all these tools that are now available today when I started in the internal comms world. To date myself, I mean, smartphones weren't even a thing <laughs> when I started an internal comms. So the, the concept of now having mobile technology for employees would have been life-altering at yeah. the time. But you, you use what you had. Yeah. To, and as an example of that, at GM, we produced one of the first ever digital videos for employee comms. So we had a we spent thousands of dollars on a digital video editor to create digital videos that you can now do on your phone in about five seconds. Yeah. Right? But, but back then, that's what you had to invest in to make that kind of those kind of changes happen. So I'm always amazed and impressed by the technology that's available. I do seem to think there's this. It, it's I know we'll get into this term a little bit later. This complaining thing that I've kind of jumped on, but people do like to talk about, oh my gosh, there's just too many channels. And my point is, no, there are so many channels. There's <laughs> so many opportunities to do this because I even think back in my career, certain channels looked a lot better and behaved a lot better because I like them more than other channels. So I will readily admit to people that the internet at Rolls-Royce that I managed was awful. And it was awful because I didn't really like the internet. Mm. Now, the Digital Signage Network was amazing because it was fun and cool, and so I invested time in it. But where that failed me as a communicator was all those people that relied on the Internet had a very negative experience. So I let my personal bias impact the experience of all those employees. And it wasn't until long later that I realized that that negative influence that I had just on my own personal bias of what I thought I enjoyed, not necessarily what the employees wanted or what they enjoyed. And I look at this, whether it is, you know, the mobile aspect, digital signage, intranets, email um, is still growing. It's so many channels. It's so fun. And I know that there's this uh, warning label, I guess, that people assign around, you know, don't go after the shiny objects. I love the shiny objects. I love tinkering and playing and see what might work and play in the, in the early social media days. When people would ask me, like, well, should we have Twitter for our business? I'm like, well, go play with Twitter yourself and figure it out and see what you like and don't like before you launch it on the business. No differently than if you're going to launch a new channel to your employees, go play around with it, figure it out, talk to people about it. So I think it's an amazing opportunity. I don't think it should be overwhelming because as employees, they're going to consume content. They're going to get information. They're going to connect where they are most comfortable. And so as communicators, it's our responsibility to build those bridges to connect. If it is somebody, no different, Katie, than you know, you do than doing this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, for me doing podcasts, I've learned some people love listening to podcasts. Some people don't listen to podcasts, but they would rather read the transcript of the yeah. interview. Yeah. So all this, this is one content, but all these different mediums, are going to satisfy the needs of your employees 
So invest in those channels, have fun with those channels, but really it's about making sure that you're maximizing the time you spend. You're not duplicating too many efforts in there. Um, there's a great lesson from a future comms event a few years ago. Uh, there's an editor from the New York Times and it was such a great lesson for internal communicators that he talked about the New York Times uh, transformation from print to online to mobile. And he said, like, when they print publication, obviously very well known, all kinds of accolades. When they then went online, the strategy was, well, let's just PDF everything and mm. then put it online. Well, that's a negative experience for readers. Mm. Right? Nobody likes that. Nobody wants to click on a link and then read a PDF. So they had to take their print and not PDF it, but convert it to online. Well, then when mobile came out, they're like, oh, this is easy. Let's just take our online stuff and put it in mobile. Well, that's not a great experience because it's too long. It doesn't read well. So they said they were trying to take the easy route to connect to their audiences. And they should have been focusing on the platform and what's the content that best serves that audience. And that's the exact approach that I think internal communicators should be taking is looking at the content. How does it best serve the audience on that platform? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Our, our creative director here says, can we please look at the functionality of the channel and create content that maximizes that functionality? So if the mobile device allows you to I don't know, geofence a certain number of people and ping content to people based on their location, let's use that and give them really local content that's specific to their locality rather than, as you say, just replicate what content might exist on one channel and just bung it on another one. Um, but I'm wondering what holds us back. And you said something about having fun. Do you think it is about just piloting and trying things out in small ways and not being so frightened of failure? I mean, is that is that one thing that potentially holds us back in IC? I, I absolutely think so. I, and I think it's because or this is how I've maybe rationalized it in my brain, it seems to be our failures are so much more visible, or they appear to be more visible than somebody else's failure. Maybe they're not as damning or condemning as somebody in accounting having a mistake. But it seems that when communicators make a mistake, the, the visibility is, is that fear part, that everybody's going to see it. People aren't going to like it. And so I wonder sometimes if that holds us back. So I am a fan of piloting, not so much to see if it works or not, but more piloting to see how can we do this better? So what did we learn to go forward with? Not as a little, I, I do like, and I'm, one of the things I, I encourage communicators to do more of is experimenting mm. inside the business, but just trying things and almost setting it up like an experiment. So have your hypothesis, put things in place, test, you know, see what the results are. Uh, so piloting, I think, could certainly be a part of that, but it's also, are you building it for success or not? Is it really just a, a test to see? Have you really invested the time and energy into it? Um, th there's a lot that can be done, but I do think some communicators do tend to be a little overwhelmed by it. Some people like to kind of stay in their lane, do the job they always, they've always done, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I just think they're missing out on really seizing the opportunity they have that as communicators, we often have reach and access beyond what any employee would ever imagine. Like we have, we can talk to senior leaders very open and honestly, or at least should be able to. Mm. We have access to them. We have reach with our messages everywhere. Those are things that employees, most employees would never even dream of having. So how are we using those powers? Is it, is it a blessing to us or do we see it as a curse mm. for our profession? I agree totally. I always think that we have this very pri privileged position in many ways in the heart of our organisations. And I think you're right, we don't necessarily always use it to our advantage as much as, as much as we could. To put you massively on the spot, and I think this is an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you could make a prediction for what channels and platforms might look like in the future so when um, the the next generation whatever we're at now uh, Zed I suppose comes into the workplace what's it going to be looking like do you reckon what's it going to be feeling like could you could you jump ahead and imagine how it could be yeah I, I struggle with these kinds of questions I'll be honest with you because it's if people ask me that your predictions or are they your hopes right for what the next five years might be <laughs> Because if I were to place a prediction, 
I would say that would be more around, I, I don't see necessarily a lot of, of changes from the day to day. I don't see there being a big change in different platforms or usage. I mean, do I see mobile growing? Absolutely. Do I see email still being there? Of course. Or internet still going to be a thing? Yes, they are. Digital signage networks still going to be around? Absolutely. So I see all of those things being a play. Enterprise social networks should be leveraged more. All of it. It goes back to all of the, all the toys, all the things that are out there. But I would, what I would like to see though, from maybe, and this is where prediction slash hope that I hope those come together is that communicators get the hell out of the way <laughs> that we, that we more focused on decentralizing of comms that for so long communicators internal and external have been this gateway that people have had to clear through us to get their message out no differently than back in the news media days you had to send a press release to news outlets to have hope they use their platform to get it out internal comms operated in much that same way mm. and i think as communicators we should be more facilitating conversation we should be building and providing platforms that allow others to communicate it's something at social chorus we talk about the big c communicators and little c communicators the people probably listening to this podcast they're the big c communicators mm. the people mm. the people have their title those are these little c communicators that is not part of their title but they are responsible for communicating inside the organization whether it be to their teams or leadership we need to empower them to let them share so we no longer have to be the button pushers and the order takers, uh, we're facilitating these conversations and truly being that trusted advisor that we've heard everybody talk about they want to be, will you be that trusted advisor by advising and getting the hell out of the way and letting other people do their own communication, but giving them the guidance to help them be better communicators. That's what I would like to see from the internal comms world is to stop being that gateway, stop being the ones that say, we are the ones that send it out. We are the ones that publish. I still think communicators should be publishing some things and communicating other things, but I really would love to see us be that facilitator and advisor on communications and not the button pushers. Yes, you took the word out of my mouth. I was going to say, and that's the role as a role as a facilitator, as you say, as opposed to a broadcaster, I guess. But that mm -hmm. requires that requires something of a cultural shift in the minds of some leadership teams. And I guess it's going to happen over time as we see younger generations of leaders come into our organizations who are more open with the idea of collaboration, conversation, breaking down hierarchical barriers, actually listening to the voice of the people, as it were, and believing in the wisdom of the crowd. I mean, this is quite, you imagine, potentially is going to change naturally as the demographics of leadership teams change. I mean, do you see that, that potentially happening? Well, what I see happening, and, and this was evident to me, I spoke at uh, an IABC Heritage Region event this past fall, and there was a brand new communicator, she's about a year into her role, talking about her frustrations with leadership around content, what she thought they could be creating versus what the company insisted on creating. And it's because I was thinking back to how she is used to creating content, just in her personal life, that the, the new world of communicators coming in are used to a certain type of content. And this isn't a boomer versus Gen X versus millennial conversation at all. Every, every new generation brings in new ideas. And so I think it's up to people like you and myself, Katie, that yeah. we start to set the tone and give them permission to speak up and give them permission to say, what do you think you should hear? Because now we're seeing internal comms as a career opportunity. Yeah. 10 years ago, it was a stopping point on to become something else, typically in the external world. Now, internal comms, you can build a career. There are CCOs at very large organizations that have only had an internal comms background. So now, as internal communicators, there is a path to the C-suite. If that's what you want, I'm not saying everybody gets to become a CCO one day, but there is a path to that C-suite. Years ago, no path. Now there is a path to do that. Years ago, um, when I started off in the city of London, there was absolutely no way that you could get to that level if you'd only done internal comms. And that's a radical change that I think we should kind of be proud of in a way that I see is much more on the map. It's a much more, it's a credible <laughs> communication uh, function, I guess, and, and, and communication discipline. 
Um, but you've been championing the cause of IC for a long time. Um, I was looking at Icology, which started back in 2015, I think that's right. I just wondered what made you think, I'm going to launch a podcast about internal communications back in 2015. Well, one thing about me that you learned about, one was the stirring of the pot thing that I like to do every now and then. Uh, the other thing is if somebody else is doing, this beats even back to when I was an internal communicator, if somebody else is doing something already out there, it doesn't really interest me in doing it. Like no. I like to kind of push new areas. And back then when I started Ecology, there was really only one podcast that even kind of touched on it a little bit. And it was Shell Holtz, who's been podcasting way even longer than I have. But there wasn't one that truly focused just on the world of internal comms. And so when I decided I wanted to do a podcast, I, one, struggled coming up with a name for it. Not that that's the most important thing, but at the time it felt very important to come up with a good name. Mm-hmm. And I came up with Ecology out of a bad Google search <laughs> where I started in typing just IC words and I put in like ICO and just hit enter and it says, oh, do you mean ecology? Ah. And I was like, no, but ecology sounds really cool. And then if you look up the definition of ecology, ecology fits. So I was like, okay, now I've got my name. Now what is it going to be? And this ultimately came out of me being a little frustrated at my voice only existing on other people's platforms that um. are out there. So I wanted to have my own platform that had my voice, but not necessarily just my voice. I wanted to build a platform that had voices of communicators all over the world. But because internal communicators tend to stay not siloed, but but inside their own world, sometimes you kind of kind of pull them out, drag them out a little bit to be a part of it. And what was really cool was to see the enthusiasm early on and what that what that built into. Um, it is something now that I, when I talk to other people who want to start their podcast, I let people know, like, be prepared to suck early on. <laughs> like, it will not be great right away, and that's okay. Um, it's no different than the analogy I use when I, on a house that I own, I thought about building my own deck on the back of the house. But I talked to this guy who's a deck builder, and he's like, you know what? You actually could build your own deck. But he's like, you know what? My second hundred decks were way better than my first 100 decks. Yeah. And my yeah. third 100 decks were way better than my second 100 decks. So I was like, well, okay, this is kind of exactly like the podcasting world. Like your first, the first 10 you do aren't very good. And that's okay because you're, because you're going to get better. So don't, because what happens is so many people start and stop before they start to build and get comfortable and confident in doing it. Uh, so there, there's so many lessons that can be learned from just my own early, I don't want to say failures, but kind of, mistakes and how to get better at doing it and promoting it and getting people excited about it. Um, so that's really the, the origin story, I guess, of Ecology. But it was so fun to then feature people on there that they themselves did not think their story was all that unique. And it's got right. to be a common thread that I got to hear over and over because they thought what they were doing, everybody else was doing. But they weren't. And that's what made the story and all the stories and all the guests are great. And that really goes back to your journalism roots, doesn't it? That goes back to your your fascination and your drive and your excitement to get the story. And I think in journalism, we know that to somebody else's ears, it might seem very ordinary, run of the mill, but there's always a great story to uncover if you ask the right questions in the right way. So I totally understand that. I would just say that with my very first episode, which I was very nervous and I look back and listen back and it's not great, but I had Rachel Miller as a guest. So <laughs> I really couldn't go far wrong with Rachel. You really, no, that, that, that's, I, is that cheating? My first, <laughs> you know, well, again, so, so my first guest on the podcast was a lady named Mamie Pierce who at the time was the internal comms manager for Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas, uh, my, one of my favorite hotels in the entire world. And what I saw them doing was just unlike anything any other com- internal communication team was doing. So kind of like you, like it, it was a no-brainer as far as content, what they were doing and getting people excited about it. Um, but it, it is vulnerable. You have to put yourself out there. You have one, one other piece of advice to, t- to tell people, you really have to like your own voice. 
And nobody likes it at the start, but you get used to it to the point where you hear yourself and you're like, okay, that's what I sound like. I may not like it, but you still get used to it. You're not cringing every time you hear it like you might have before. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always wanted one of those lovely, smooth Radio 4 voices, but I realized, well, you just haven't got one, so you just have to carry on regardless, I guess. I just well, my father to... always told me I had a face for radio, so now <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> I just wonder what that whole, all those years of experience of, of um, interviewing people has kind of taught you about yourself and also taught you about the profession because you must have had so many conversations um, with so many different people doing different things in comms. What's your kind of abiding thought, I suppose, when you when you think back to all those conversations? Yeah, I, I think it's something I've learned about me is that I'm pretty good at it. it. It was something that I didn't know was necessarily strength of mine, that how do you talk to people about things you are interested in without featuring yourself as part of it, like letting mm. them tell their story, like taking that step back, kind of what we were talking about before, like getting communicators, get the hell out of the way. Like as a podcast interviewer, like get out of the way so that let people tell their story. Um, that's That was something I noticed kind of early on that I was able to do, but it was really more around like, those things that internal communicators don't think are really that special, but truly are. Mm. And then hearing them, like, I can't tell you how many times, like, people have told me that their mom then subscribed to my podcast <laughs> because they wanted their mom to hear them on the episode. Like, to me, there's no greater joy when you've helped somebody create something that then they want their mom or dad or friends or whoever to listen to because they are proud of it. And I want internal communicators to be proud of who they are, what they do, what they bring to the profession. And that's what I hope psychology helped build over the years. Well, I, uh, let me just say a collective thank you on behalf of the profession um, for giving people a platform, I guess, to share their experiences and promoting the profession as, as a result. Do you have someone, if you could wave a magic wand, that you'd still like to interview? Is there someone, not necessarily even from the world of IC, that you'd think, gosh, if I could get them in a recording studio, I'd love to ask them this particular question? Yep, there there are two people that come to mind, and one was, and I've not yet been successful at it. I haven't worked hard, the hardest lately on, on making this happen in the last year or so, but I've always wanted to interview the CEO of T-Mobile, John Legere, mm. uh, only because of what he does from a culture standpoint, what he does from a leadership standpoint. Now, I know he's stepping down uh, sometime, I think it's in 2020, but it's his view on leadership and culture and how he brings through and how active he is on Twitter. And he posts these crockpot Sunday videos of him once he's making his crockpot on Sunday. Like that's the type of leader that I, that again, I think other people want to see. Maybe that's me and that's my bias, but I think about like, why is that important to him? Why is he taking the time? Because so often I hear communicators say, well, either they don't have the time or our leader doesn't have the time to do it. Well, if you're the CEO of T-Mobile, you probably don't have the time either, but you're making the time to do that kind of stuff. So John Legere is one, and there's another one. It's a reporter, a gentleman named Steve Hartman. And if anybody wants to go Google him and Google on the road with Steve Hartman, I think he's one of, I think he is the best interviewer I've ever heard. He does these segments on CBS that are the most heart-wrenching, grab-the-tissues type interviews. But again, he lets people tell their story. And at one point, he wanted to prove, and I love this angle for internal communicators, he wanted to prove that there are stories everywhere. And he did this one segment where he had a map of the United States, and he threw a dart at it. <laughs> and it hit on some town in the middle of nowhere in Kansas. So he drove to this town in Kansas <laughs> and then opened the phone book, which was a thing then, and randomly flipped to a page and called some guy and found this most amazing war story from this yeah. gentleman about his you know journey to Europe and then back to the U.S. and his struggles. And I thought, there, are, there truly are stories everywhere, and everyone has a story. So the fact that he's able to do that, it was awesome, but it's really just like his 
storytelling technique. Like I would love to see him present at a conference about how he brings that story out from people. And anytime you can then bring the emotion to it, whether you're an employee or not, if you watch any of these on the roof segments with Steve Hartman on YouTube, you'll, you'll get exactly what I'm getting at here. Mm, it's a very powerful thing to be able to do. It reminds me of a quote. I think it's a French philosopher called Gascon who said, um, and I'll get this right for the show notes, but if basically then if someone doesn't appear interesting, it's just because you haven't asked them the right question yet. But I, I absolutely you. love that quote because that is, <laughs> that is 100% true. And it's so true for our organizations. I mean, you could almost do that with an organogram, couldn't you? You could put the whole of your, especially if you're a large PLC, uh, large corporation up on the wall and throw a dart and say, I'm going to hit this specific team buried in some division, in some regional office and rock up. There will be a great story there for sure. It's just finding it, really. It's just. I, mean, I, I thought about it. If, if you could, obviously, you don't, not everybody has a, has a map of their company, but take that same philosophy and randomly pick a, a person and just go sit down with them. There's a story there. And that, that quote that you shared, Katie, is so perfect because I believe it 100% true. If people seem boring because so you haven't asked them the right question, again, that's what the Steve Hartman guy does. He somehow knows how to ask the right question. Now, of course, what we're seeing is the polished, finished part, and that's fine, right? Editing, all that can happen. But finding those stories, if you don't have content, you're not looking hard enough. <laughs> There's a great quote. So tell me about Culture Comms and Cocktails. Is this, a, is this your, your latest podcasting venture? Is that how people should be listening to you now, finding you now? It, it's, it's the one that, that is probably the most updated that I do with Social Chorus, where, again, people tend to be, as we talked very on about this digital IC landscape, people tend to be very overwhelmed by the financial investment, the personal investment, the expectations that it has. And so the idea behind Culture Comes of Cocktails is to feature those, um, those communicators who have taken that jump, who have invested in new technology, and have them talk about their successes, but not just from the comm side of things. Also talk about how it's impacted the culture. Right? Where would the culture come from and in this investment to bring this new communications platform to them? So we talk about culture. We talk about comms. And then one of the other loves that I have are fancy cocktails. So we always wrap up with cocktail recommendations, and there have been some really great ones on the podcast. So the hope is there that people get a sense of comfort in knowing I'm not the first to do this. Here's a litany of other communicators who have been successful and who have done it that I can now learn from to take back to my organization. Mm, no, that's great. You've now become... I wouldn't say a regular speaker, but you do speak at a lot of conferences and events. I saw you at CIPR Inside. Um, you flew over to the UK for that this October. Do you feel any sense of, um, I'm just trying to think of the right word, but do you have to have broad shoulders, I guess, because now you've become a voice of the profession? Is that something that worries you at all or disquiets you? Or are you very happy to just get up on stage and share your thoughts? Well, for one, I'm shameless, Katie. So <laughs> I'm, it's not, I'm not intimidated by taking the stage. I'm a big animal. You've seen me. I've got big shoulders uh, to carry all of this. And I, I think it's because I, I want to make other people feel comfortable in doing it. And I know that there are the people who, they're like, man, I could never do that. I, I could never get up on stage and do that. And that's okay. You don't have to do that to, to, to still have a voice in the profession. But I do enjoy it. I get completely jacked up when I get a chance to speak. I enjoy being on the stage, whether that feeds my ego, career desires, whatever it might be. Um, it's something I absolutely enjoy. And I hope that comes across. I hope that enjoyment comes across to the people in the audience. I hope that passion comes across for it. Because I do see myself as a big internal comms cheerleader, minus, mm. the, co minus the costume and the pom-poms. Right? <laughs> but I, I am that cheerleader. I want this profession and the people that are in it to realize what they can do and what they can be and how they can help employees and help solve business problems and not just be kind of part of that make it pretty committee that I joke about. But I do mm. take that responsibility very seriously. I do, though, think sometimes 
uh, even in my space, I don't realize perhaps the impact that that has. It's very weird, and Katie, I'm sure you come across this as well, where you'll be at an event talking to people, and I've had somebody come up and be like, I've heard your voice. Yeah, where do I know you from? And then they make the connection. Or people have said like, oh my God, I love that episode you did with so-and-so. That was so great. And you don't realize when you start creating content, you start speaking at events and doing podcasts and whatever it is, all these ripples you're putting out there that are going to, people are going to trip across somewhere. And that's what makes this so great because internal comms is a big world, but we're also a very small world. And what I like, what I enjoy doing being in this kind of, position and this responsibility is being a connector and to connect people to each other. When I hear of one communicator doing one thing that I think another communicator could benefit from, my I view it as my responsibility to bring those two communicators together and make that happen. Mm-hmm. So I view that as kind of my responsibility as a way to give back because I've built this network. I want to make that work for the internal comms world and bring people together. But as you pointed out, I am very comfortable on stage. Um, I even did a minor strip show, I guess, when <laughs> I was in Birmingham, where for those that, if anybody has ever heard me talk, ever read anything I've written, knows I'm a huge Duran Duran fan. Birmingham is a spiritual home of Duran Duran. And so I uh, got up on stage and after about a couple of minutes, uh, stripped down to just a Duran Duran concert t-shirt, put my jacket back on and finished it with my little tip of the cap to the boys from Birmingham. Um, so not everybody has to do that, but I think it's, I would love to see communicators take little risks. Maybe it's presenting inside your own company and get very good. Maybe it's going to a Toastmasters class inside your company. Whatever it is, there's, there's avenues to start to overcome your fear if you want to overcome your fear and your nerves. Some people don't want to, so I would never in a million years push it, but I'm often the one when I hear somebody tell a story, I'll be the one prompting them to submit to speak at an event. Like, oh, that's a great story. You should submit that. Like, I would gladly help them build up that confidence because it's a story that the broader profession needs to hear. Mm. Does it also mean that you um, deliberately stay curious because you are that networker and you want to find out what's going on and what's at the cutting edge of our profession? Does it mean that you're always on the lookout for... Um, new research, new studies, new ideas? Do you, do you try I, to keep your ear to the ground? Absolutely. At times, my curiosity drives me crazy <laughs> because, because it is I, what I try to do is to make these connections, not just people, but to ideas that I think other people haven't made yet that I want the profession thinking about. No different. So at the, at the Birmingham event, the CIPR Inside event, I spoke about cognitive bias and communication. Because I think there's this link between how our brains work and how we communicate and how people receive communication. And I want the internal comms world to begin thinking about this broader impact that we have and how we can look at things beyond just the images we use and the words we choose. So I, I want that bigger picture, whether it's reading things from MIT Sloan or Harvard Business Review or Fast Company. All these publications have these great articles that impact us as communicators because we are also business people. And these little tidbits are what I try to pull out, whether it's research or ideas or quotes or those connections. I'm always trying to share those to either inspire the industry and the profession or challenge the industry and the profession on kind of the standards that we've put in place. Yes, absolutely. We're talking of standards. You mentioned this complaining. What is complaining? Mm-hmm. Um, and why should we, why should we stop doing it? <laughs> Yeah, so it's a it's a term that I came up with with Kristen Hancock, who is also my wife. Um, we both work with communicators in different ways, but what we noticed is there were these common complaints that we kept hearing from communicators over and over and over again. And so we came up with this complaining term because it's been this epidemic use of well, we can't do this because of that, or we can't do this because they would never do I hear it all the times when, they, when communicators will tell me, oh, my gosh, our employees will never download an app. <laughs> Number one, they've never asked their employees if they would. We're just projecting our own fears, biases, whatever word you want to use, that's going to impact the rest of the world. So one of them, one of these complaints 
that drive me crazy is when you hear communicators say, oh, our attention spans are shrinking, or you see that this, we've got shorter attention spans than goldfish. This is this common thing. When you look at it, one, it's a completely BS data point. There's no science behind it. Of course, we don't have the attention spans of goldfish. We will binge watch hours of Netflix <laughs> if, it, if it keeps us curious, right? We're not every eight seconds jumping to something else. So what I hear when communicators say, oh, we can't, our employees' attention spans, we, we don't have a chance, we're not fighting it. It's like, no, it's just your content's really boring. <laughs> like that's, that's what it is. It's not, they don't have a short attention span. We just have, we don't have time to pay attention to crappy content. Yeah. If your content is really good, we people will pay attention to it. People will watch hours of content in a row if it's good content. So don't don't use this BS study about comparing the human attention span to a goldfish. It's not it's garbage, but people will use that. And the other common one, and this is one that your first guest, Rachel Miller, her and I disagree on this one, is when they'll say things like, oh, our employees have survey fatigue. Because just, we just survey them too much. They have survey fatigue. When in actuality, it's like, no, you just have really bad surveys. Yep. And you've never done anything with the feedback. Exactly. So they're not, they're not tired of taking surveys. They're tired of taking really bad surveys that nobody does anything with. So mm -hmm. don't project your own poor surveys and not giving feedback and not sharing what you've done with the feedback on employees say, we can't do it because they got survey fatigue. They're not fatigued. If you, do a survey, use the feedback in a, in a quick manner and say, here's what, here's what you told us. Here's what we're going to do. Now later come back and say, here's what we did based on that feedback. The next time you go to ask them, absolutely people will mm. give you that feedback. So don't use the survey fatigue thing. And this is where I set people up when we speak about comps pointing as a bad who's have survey fatigue. Everybody raise your hands. I'm like, it's not a thing <laughs> because it's, we've made it up. We, we've comsplained away surveys to project our own insecurities and poor use of them. Yes, yes. And that's just a short list of them. It's IT, it's legal, it's quote-unquote want a seat at the table. All this stuff that we've taken as like part of our profession aren't helping our profession. In fact, anything, they're sabotaging our careers. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I'm conscious of your time here, Chuck. Um, are you all right to carry on for a little bit longer or do we have to put a hard stop? You got me on a roll, Katie. Okay, no, that sounds good. That sounds good. Because what I'd love to do is just ask you, because obviously, now how many years now have you worked in IC? Are you, are you able to tell us without giving too much away about your age? Are you comfortable to tell oh, us? Oh, I'm, I, today is my 44th birthday. Kate. Oh, congratulations. Happy birthday. Well, there yeah. you go. So I have been in internal comms, I would say for roughly 20 years, give or take. Now, has it been solely internal that entire time? Absolutely not. But I would, I would say right around 20 years. And I remember when people, when I would go to events and they would say, oh, they've got 20 years of experience. I'd be like, holy hell, they're old. <laughs> and, now, and now I just realized, like, I'm one of those old people that yeah. other people think are old. So <laughs> I really know that feeling. Um, we, won't go, <laughs> we won't go there. We won't go there. Um, so what then keeps you excited? excited about the future what at the moment are you thinking that's something I'd really like to find out more about or I think is going to have a real impact on our profession is there one topic issue technology whatever it might be that you're really excited about at the moment I think it's because we haven't even really started to scratch the surface of the true impact that quality and creative internal comms can have on a mm. business and I, what I want to see is this transition of where communicators started out just being the email newsletter senders or the article writers or the presentation makers. That's how it started. But we had to evolve way beyond that. And most communicators have evolved way beyond that. So that's what keeps me excited is that we haven't even really grasped onto what we have as a, as a career opportunity within internal comms as well as an impact on the business. One of the pieces of advice that I give communicators, if they're, especially if they're struggling with leadership, is one, go talk to them and say, what are you, what keeps you up at night? What are your two, three big issues? Whatever, whatever angle is going to work with that leader. And then go use communication to solve one, two, three of those problems. 
Mm. Like whatever their issue is, help them solve a problem. Don't just be the communicator. Be a problem solver for the business. That's when you start delivering value pack. No different than a production supervisor would solve a problem that's out there. Or a finance manager would solve a problem. Or a quality manager. HR, whoever it is, everybody's out there trying to solve problems in the business. I would love to see communicators, you know, detail that out with leaders. Even if you had uh, eight people out there and you picked a problem for each one, each month or a year you've spent dedicated trying to solve a problem. Not spend your whole 40 hours a week or how many hours a week you spend at work. But really focus in to see how can I use communications to make an impact and solve a problem they're facing. And that's where you start to build that relationship and be that advisor that we all want to be. We want leaders to come to us eventually, but it's okay if we go to them at the beginning. You're absolutely right. I mean, I can't think of a business problem that can't be, if it can't be totally solved, at least help considerably by better communication around that problem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and picking ones that really matter to your leaders is not a bad way. It's not a bad place to start, is it? Um, it's absolutely not. Or is it is it one of these uh, surveys you've sent out to people that nobody's ever done with the feedback? Pick one of those data points mm. and be like, what what can we do to address this one thing? Um, you be seen as that as that problem solver in the organization. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Can we turn to those quick fire questions? Absolutely. Um, so what piece of careers advice um, do you wish, or if you could travel back in time, I suppose, would you give yourself in your early 20s, say? What would you tell yourself to do more or less of? Yep. So the, the, the one piece of career advice that, I, that was given to me that was the best career advice I've ever been given was at my very first job, six-month review, my manager said, hey, your work product is great, all this kind of stuff, blah, 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 but you need to learn how to use an iron. <laughs> and that took the heart because that showed to me that it's not just what you do, but your presence, your energy. You need to have an iron shirt, which was kind of a foreign concept to me when I was 22. Um, but it's all. sometimes it is about that polish. It's about the finish that you put on communication or a product. At Social Course, we, we talk a lot about that B plus is better than A plus. Everybody's striving for perfection. You never get there. You're never going to get perfection. And if you're, you're just setting yourself up for failure, if you think you're going to get there, that would be one piece of advice I have is don't, don't focus on being perfect. The other piece of advice I would have is don't even remotely pretend that you know what's going to happen. Right. If, if you had asked me at 22, what I was going to be doing. And I said, no, nope, you know what? You're wrong. At 44, twice your age, you're going to be working for, you're going to have your podcast. And I've been like, what's a podcast? But I had a podcast. You're going to speak at events. You're going to work for a workforce platform company as an advisor. Um, all these things, you're going to work from home. i have been like, what? Because there's no way, there's no way I could have mapped that journey, but I'm here now. So I guess it's it's take all those opportunities that are presented to you and really seize them, maximize them, and focus on what's best for you in your career. Um, sometimes the best thing you can do is leave an organization and go to the next stop. And maybe you come back another day or you zigzag in your career because each of those steps, you're going to get those experiences that build to the next one. No different than I mentioned about my really bad internship experience. That led me to the next big opportunity. So all opportunities, all experiences are there for the taking and just leverage each one, maximize that opportunity and keep building on your career. Even if it means you leave IC for a little bit to learn about something else and you come back to internal comps, that's going to make you a better communicator overall. I think that's absolutely brilliant advice. Thank you for that, Chuck. What one book, journal, website, it really doesn't matter, should all communicators read? So this is going to come out a little bit of left field on it. I think a book that every communicator should read is a book called The Design of Everyday Things. Mm. And the reason is it makes you question how everything in this world works or is designed to work or is so poorly designed to work. Like it's basically the idea behind this is, or this is just one example, that doors shouldn't have to have labels on them. 
they shouldn't have to say push or pull. The design uh-huh. of the door should tell you if it's a push or a pull. I think about that from our communication, the design of how we communicate. We should understand what goes into that. We should understand the mechanics of it, what builds it, so that it is the most intuitive experience ever for that employee. So, yeah, the design of everyday things, it has nothing to do with communication, but I think it's it's just a, it's such a great read because it makes you look at everything around you to see either how wonderfully designed it is or how absolutely god-awful it is. It's a really interesting insight because what I see, I don't know if you see this, quite, happen quite a lot, is because we are so close to our channels and our content and our stories, we feel everyone should understand the purpose and the objective and how to read it and when to read it and why it's there and when it's coming out. And we forget because we designed the door, we know that it's a push door, but no one else does. <laughs> they right. haven't lived so with it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but could you have designed it better in the first place to make it a joy, a joyful, obvious, intuitive experience? I, I love that. I love that idea. Absolutely love that idea. Um, what would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain that you couldn't fail? I would play the lottery. <laughs> What's the first thing you're going to go out and buy then in that case? I would disappear, Katie. You guys would not see me for a really long time. Oh, no, don't say that. You'd get bored on your desert I would. Oh, I would get bored. No, you know what? First thing I would do, I've always wanted to own a landscaping company. I always thought that would be fun to have a landscaping. I like working with my hands. But, no, if I could do anything, I know that's kind of a joke. Um, playing the lottery would be, winning the lottery would be pretty amazing, especially if you knew you were going to win. Um, I don't, I guess I don't worry about, I don't worry about failure. I know that there are things that I'm going to do that aren't going to work. I feel like I've put enough thought into things that if I'm throwing it out there, I, I kind of probably have a pretty good idea of, of that some people are going to like it. A lot of people may not like it and that's okay. So failure isn't a, isn't a, blocker for me i think it's more around like are you are you protecting your own reputation in the in the industry out there that that, that's again back to that kind of responsibility of being a voice that's where i've kind of taken that to heart is understanding that maybe some of the content you're sharing a little more people pay attention to than others so you have a little greater responsibility to it does it make you think twice? Does it make your sort of finger hover over the keyboard for a bit longer before you press publish or send? Because you think, hang on a minute, there's a potentially, my reputation's at stake, potentially there's, there's thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of people that could see it. Does, does it make you, make you question yourself? It probably should make me question, I probably should hover a few more seconds on something now that I think about it. <laughs> that I put out there because I tend to want to express my ideas. Maybe perhaps may not be the most positively accepted or generally accepted angle on things. But I I guess in my mind, I've thought enough through it that maybe there are some times where I'm like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have sent it out there. So I don't know that it it stops me, but it does, I think maybe kind of temper some of the things, but, but there are times where all of us are guilty of letting our ego and emotions get the best of us whether it's sharing things on social or having conversations with people that later were like, ah, I could have done that a lot better. And I think that then it's just learning from that. Mm-hmm. You're good, I think, at sharing personal stuff. I, am I right in that I saw a tweet from you not that long ago talking about an illness that you'd had that affected your eyesight? Am I right about this? That's, that's correct. Yeah, it was about a, a little more than a year ago I suffered an eye stroke. And which I didn't even know was a thing. No. Uh, otherwise, I'm otherwise I'm completely healthy, but I am blind in my right eye. No. I mean that must be. I was I was thinking about this before we spoke, and I was thinking I would actually covered my right eye up just to see what it was like going on the underground with one eye. It's much more debilitating, is it not? Or have you just than you, you might think it might be, or is it something you've managed to get used to, or you've had to get used it's, to? It, I guess. It's something that you kind of have to get used to. Yeah. Um, the, the good thing about it was after going through it, everybody, you know, the, all the doctors and tests and everything, good thing about it is I'm 100% healthy. It was just one of those weird things that happened. Uh, wow. So I have kind of adjusted to it. But but the good thing about it, there's a lot of really great eye puns out there that 
that people can enjoy and have fun with. So on my on my kind of the one year we called it the anniversary of it. Uh, I, I encourage people to share their best iPuns on Twitter, and people did right because there's nothing I can do about it. It is what it is. But here's what was so fascinating about when I shared that, which other people said, "Oh, that's you know very vulnerable." He was like, "Oh, that's what was going on with me at the time." There were a handful of people who I'm not going to mention who came out to me that said, you know, like one person came to me. I didn't know. She's like, I've been blind in my left eye my entire life. Wow. I had no idea. This is somebody I've sat down with, talked to. No, left eye, right? I don't remember. I think she said it was left eye. Um, Other people had talked about how they have hearing issues or they have other physical ailments. And I didn't know. So by, by you being vulnerable, you're allowed other people to be vulnerable. And then that kind of, makes everybody feel seem to be a little more accepting of it. But it's also something that I live with every day. I honestly don't think too much about it. Um, if I did, it would probably be really sad, but I don't think too much about it. And you just adjust and move on. And it's just now part of, of uh, who I am. I think you're absolutely right about vulnerability. And it's a, it's a way of bonding with each other when we let our guard down and admit something and we become vulnerable and more human as a result. But it's a, I think it's a and difficult it's, thing And it's do. not like... And it's not like the vague booking that people do where it's like these ambiguous statements where people are like fishing for support and compliments. I hope, I hope nothing I've ever posted comes across as that. Um, but it is about, I think, just sharing with people what's going on in your world to know that, yeah, sometimes, sometimes life's a little bit harder than other days. And, but thankfully, you know, I've got my wife, I've got my kids. We're all healthy. I enjoy what I do. Um, life could certainly be a whole lot worse. I can get by with, with one eye. Mm, mm. Which brings us to then your ultimate message that you might put on a billboard for millions to see. It's nicked from the uh, the Tim Ferriss show. But do you have a message that you'd you'd broadcast to the world? Is, is my name quoted on the billboard with it? <laughs> Not necessarily. Okay. I think I would like to see a big billboard. And also, is this, am I allowed to swear at this point? Yes, you are. Okay. I'd like to see a big billboard that just says, give a shit. <laughs> and just let other, just let everybody interpret what that means for them. Because that's, those are the communicators that I like working with. This goes back to the a project that Alan Oram and Alive with Ideas and I did years ago, which is our, the very hungry communicator. Yeah. And Alan asked me, like, what's the what's the one word you use to describe a communicator you want to work with? And I was like, I like hungry communicators, and that's where that came from. Because, again, hungry communicators care. Like, when you give a shit about something, you care about it. And I love it. I love to see when people really care, whether it's a really big thing or a little thing. Like, I just like it when people kind of give a shit because they put emotion and passion and interest into it. Um, so yeah, I think I would like to see that on a big billboard and just let everybody interpret what that means for them. Perfect. And the very last few moments of this podcast, I've got a couple of quick Duran Duran questions for you because I, oh my goodness. I couldn't possibly, could I, have this whole conversation go by without properly diving into Duran Duran. The, the first question is so obvious, I'm embarrassed to ask it, but for those who might not know, where does the name Duran Duran come from? Well, it was from a movie called Barbarella, and in the movie, there's a character named Dr. Duran Duran. So that's, that's yep, the character. So they've got, they've got a song later called Electric Barbarella, so that's they'll right. the cap to that movie, starring Jane Fonda back in the day. It was, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so one out of one, to make it two out of two, which 1981 music video was banned by the BBC and by Much Music, I believe, in Canada for its racy content? So that would be Girls on Film. Absolutely. Uh, which was banned uh, even by MTV at the time. And I think even today it would still be banned. They, they kind of, again... They didn't mind stirring the pot and pushing the envelope. Maybe that was some of the earlier influences from Duran Duran on me. But, uh, yeah, girls on film. And this is a question, my final, final question. I promise, Chuck, I don't know the answer to this one. Which Duran Duran song is Chuck Ghost's favorite all-time Duran Duran song? Mm, so this is, this is a loaded question, so I'm going to answer with two, and here's why. When I give my real answer, I sound like one of those arrogant, 
know-it-all fans. So <laughs> as a kid, the reflex was yeah. my favorite because of the because of the video. Yeah. I had never seen Duran Duran in concert, but that was a concert video. And I was like, oh my God, I've got to go see this band live. Like that, like I saw them perform. Like that was amazing. And earlier this year, back in September, I saw them again in Vegas. They're still killing it. They're still kicking it. Like it's awesome. Still, still amazing performers. So the reflex is my favorite from that standpoint. But privately, uh, my favorite song is, is The Chauffeur. Mm. Uh, some people know it as Sing Blue Silver, but the real name of it is The Chauffeur. Um, and in fact, when I, um, spoke at the Birmingham event, the CIPR Inside event in Birmingham. Uh, as a speaker gift, thank you, I got uh, the lyrics from the chauffeur frames nice. uh, from the organizing committee. So they knew that was my my favorite song. Thank you so much, Chuck. And thank you so much for appearing on the show. It's been an absolute delight to interview you. Well, and thank you for, for doing this. Again, I know Ecology was one of the first internal comments podcasts. I love seeing your voice out there, Katie. I love seeing the voices of others out there. I think the more voices we have, not even singing the same song, but just sharing ideas and getting voices out there and getting people excited and exposing new ideas, that's only going to make the internal comms world better. So thank you for all that you do, too. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. For all the books and the other resources Chuck and I talked about, head over to AB's website, abcom, that's abcowm.co.uk. You'll find the show notes there. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. And if you did enjoy this episode, I'd be extremely grateful if you could rate it on iTunes, because I'm told that is the very best way of making the show more discoverable for other IC professionals out there. And to make sure you don't miss another episode, like the one coming up with Priya Bates, with Bill Quirk and the FBI hostage negotiator and best-selling author Chris Voss, then just hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform. So, until we meet again, lovely listeners, remember, it's what's inside that counts. <laughs> <laughs>